you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fishery science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you're a generous sort, you can support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you're able to support the show with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. So check that out. Our guest today is Maria Andrea Lopez Gomez. Maria Andrea is from Guatemala and has completed her training in the U.S., France, and Spain. Maria is an occupational health epidemiologist with a background in sociology and demography. She's currently a postdoctoral fellow with the Ocean Frontier Institute in the sociology department at Memorial University. With OFI, Maria investigates how socio-ecological and policy changes impact recruitment, training, and retention of fish harvesters in small-scale fisheries in Newfoundland and Labrador. She's also a co-investigator in the Harris Center Thriving Regions funded project which aims to produce knowledge on the needs of coastal communities in terms of equitable and sustainable employment in the aquaculture industry. Her research focuses on the impact that public and organizational policies and their implementation have on workers' health and well-being, and occupational outcomes for future generations. So, welcome to the podcast, Maria. Thank you, Mirella. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh, so, Maria, you have a background in public health, sociology and demography, and occupational health, and you have explored how policies impact work and workers in Spain and the U.S., focusing on nurses, patient care assistants, commercial drivers, and the general population. Uh, so, what was it that sparked your interest in studying fisheries and fish harvesters in Canada? How has that previous work also helped you better understand fisheries? Yes. So, yeah, it's funny because I've always looked at big data, population data. And when I did my PhD, I was looking at um, all sorts of workers and doing all these analyses about mortality and disability. But I would always have to take out fish harvesters and agriculture workers because their data was so choppy. They're not uh, part of the normal social security system in Spain. So I always thought it was a bit unfair that I was that nobody was actually analyzing fish harvesters the way we analyze other workers. So I think one of the main things that interested me about this job was that I was going to go, go deep into studying employment in the fishing sector, not only with quantitative methods, but also qualitatively, like talking to fish harvesters and just leaving in Newfoundland and Labrador breathing you know, breathing the fishing, um, the fishing issues, regulations, programs, and what's happening. And the second reason why it interests me is because um, it's a profession that is that is related to natural resources management. So this is a different kind of policy that, that I'm used to studying. Before I've, I've looked at economic policies and labor policies, but this like fishing is impacted by regulation of natural resources. So that's very interesting. Um, and how has my background prepared me to work in, in the fishing sector? Well, I would say that maybe just learning how to study different uh, working populations has been um, an asset in this sense, because before I've studied nurses, patient care assistants, also bus drivers, or the population at, at large, sometimes um, informal workers, self-employed workers. So just asking the right questions in my mind for fish harvesters, I think uh, it prepared me to work with fish harvesters in that sense. And also just uh, seeing the broader picture of how policymaking um, affects employment. And I, I, and I have to say like, there's a distinction between employment conditions and working conditions. Employment conditions are those that um, relate to your job contract. If it's um, if it's full time, part time, if you get benefits, etc. And working conditions is actually your conditions at work. Like, do you work uh, sitting down all day? 
uh, do you work next to um, a source of heat? Um, so it's more of the physical things. So thinking about these two in the fishery, um, it's different, right? So my previous work sort of prepared me with the basic tools of what work entails and how I can use these tools to look at work in the fisheries. Yeah, that's very interesting, Maria, and thanks for sharing that with us. So on the other side, how does it complement your overall understanding of how policies impact work and workers across countries and sectors since you worked in uh, across different countries and all these different sectors? Mm -hmm. So what is this new knowledge of fisheries bringing to that or adding to that? Yeah, I think it's fisheries work is very unique compared to other work I've studied and especially here in Canada, because as I mentioned, I've studied um, workers who have a contract, who have an employer, who have benefits, um, who are on a payroll system. Uh, fish harvesters are not employees of a corporation or an organization. Uh, owner operators, that would be people who own a license and an enterprise, they are basically self-employed what they fish is what they earn right and then they they have different contracts with their crew crew members so it's it i think it's it's a it's it's a great opportunity to study work in the fisheries because it's different from what i'm used to and it's very challenging at the same time because it's not informal work it has some characteristics of self-employment and then in canada there's all these um benefits only for fish harvesters and there's all this infrastructure helping fish harvesters whereas in other parts of the world i would say the glo global south they don't have this infrastructure that they have in canada um that maybe i mean it, it would it would be great that they would because for example during covid um fish harvesters were able to access uh, benefits specifically for them I'm not sure in the rest of the world if that was the case, given that uh, fish harvesters do not work for a corporation, do not have a boss. I'm talking about small scale, of course. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's the uniqueness of work in the fishery. And, and that's how I relate it with other work I've done. So are, you're currently a postdoctoral fellow with the Ocean Frontier Institute at Memorial University in Canada. So can you tell us more about your research and how how is that important to you and our society in general? Yeah, so I um, I think it's important, especially here in Newfoundland and Labrador, because it's a province that has been dedicated to fishing for centuries, I would say. And it has changed a lot in the past three, four decades, how people fish. So it is important to society here because it was part of the livelihoods of people and now these livelihoods or, or having or making a livelihood out of the fishery has changed so it has a big impact to communities in Newfoundland and Labrador and Newfoundland and Labrador is there's there's a lot of coastal and rural communities that unfortunately do not have access um, to a variety of employment uh, compared to people who live in cities. Um, so it is very important to study and, and, and think about how can people recover the livelihood from the fishery or how can people make a livelihood from the fishery or, from the fishery or, or continue, continue it um, in a sustainable manner, uh, in a manner that they are also taking care of the resource, but they can also make a livelihood and not have to endure unemployment, um, then it is important for me because it's 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 in line with my values. I think if I would use my research skills for other <laughs> types of work, I wouldn't I wouldn't like it. And um, here also in Finland and Labrador, I I live here and I see in the news every day. Um, there's news about the fishery. There in the radio, we talk about the fishery. Uh, there's harbors everywhere. If you if you go for a drive, you're going to go to a community, a small community. They're going to talk about the fishery, about the cod, 
So it's something that you leave. It's, it's, it can be a good opportunity to learn more about the fishery, but it can also, at some times I have to say, can also be a bit exhausting because it's your job, right? So you're always open and absorbing and trying to make links. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, it's something that's important to study and people should continue to study. And maybe the way that we study fisheries in, in the Ocean Frontier Institute uh, using social science research, maybe that's something that the government could incorporate in their research systems um, not only focusing on the science, but also focusing on how decisions um, impact social changes in the province. Yeah, and based on that experience that you've had uh, both working and living here in Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, what are some of the main issues, but also opportunities that you have identified while living here and studying fisheries in the province? Well, some of the issues I've seen um, or identified in the research that I've done so far in recruitment and retention is that the trajectory of fishing work has changed and it continues to change. Um, people entered uh, the fishery through a socialization process. Um, they would see their parents or their neighbors or a friend fishing, so they would go out and fish at a young age. Um, so you were able to participate even if you were not an adult and then people would know you and they would hire you. It, it was, it was, um, yeah, it was a socialization process, a small community. People would know you, people would know that you're responsible and they would hire you. Today, there's all these regulations. Um, some of them, I mean, I don't want to criticize or anything, but there's, um, I would say contested um, views of the professionalization process here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Now you have to take some courses to become a fish harvesters and there, there's different levels of professionalization. So um, you, have, you have to go through this process to own your license and your, your vessel to go out fishing. And these kinds of change that this changes the trajectory a bit because you have to follow some of the rules and I've one of the main issues that I've encountered in the research is that some people have difficulties to, to fulfill these requirements. Like for example, making a living, um, you have to be a full-time fish harvester to go up in the ladder of the professionalization system. And one of the requirements is that you have to make 75% of your income um, from the fishing during the fishing season. And I think the fishing season right now is from May to October. And for some people that's very difficult. They, there's very, it's very difficult, especially if you are in your thirties or forties forming a family. Um, so I think, I think even if it's an issue, it could also provide an opportunity for policymakers to think about what can we do to make it easier for these people who want to get into the fishing who want to go, who want to become stable in the fishing industry, but cannot do it because they have to follow these requirements. Um, another opportunity that I've seen, or that I, if, you know, if I continue studying this topic, it would be interesting to, to observe would be to, to look at work trajectories of crew nowadays, because I haven't been able to speak to a lot of crew and I know uh, there's been talks from the professionalization uh, board here in Newfoundland and Labrador that there's a high turnover of crew. So people start fishing, but within five years they leave the fishery. So I would love to talk to these people. Who are they? Where do they go afterwards? And I would also love to talk to people who are underrepresented in the fishery, like uh, women or people who are not from Newfoundland and Labrador or people who didn't have a fishing family. Um, that introduced them uh, to fisheries work. So those are the opportunities, um, well, in research and for policymakers. Yeah, and uh, what is commonly the trajectory of a person who wants to become a fish harvester in Newfoundland, Labrador? Yes, yeah, so I would say that all of the fish harvesters that I've spoken with, their, their trajectory has been, you know, my family used to fish, 
So now I fish. I grew up fishing. I grew up seeing my father fishing, my mother fishing, maybe an uncle or cousins fishing. And just by, you know, just by talking to them, having the opportunity to go fishing informally, maybe for a summer when somebody needed an extra hand. So people realize they like it and people also realize, oh, you can make money doing the, um, in the fishery. Um, and it's also a great option for work because if you're in a rural and coastal community in Newfoundland where there's a high unemployment rate and there's not many, there's not a variety of work, the, the fishing industry is a great opportunity. Um, so yeah, I would say that's the common trajectory. There's um, there's very few people I've spoken to that came into the, into fishing later in life, uh, and those who came, uh, those who started fishing later in life, they actually had a spouse uh, who introduced them um, to the fishery and helped them with the fishery. Yeah, that's very interesting, and that comes from a lot of uh, the research that you did. So, uh, can you tell us a bit more about your research as part of the Ocean Frontier Institute? So, yes, yeah, so I study recruitment, training, and retention of people into small-scale fisheries in Newfoundland and Labrador. And I'm studying, I'm building upon research that has been done before by colleagues um, at OFI from uh, Nicole Power and Barb Nees and others. And they've studied that there's, um, there's they, they have studied about employment issues in in the province, uh, migration, youth, work, um, and how people, some of the findings that Nicole had is that um, youth uh, are starting or to see the fishery in a negative way. And now there's, there's talks from fisheries organizations that there's a crisis in recruitment of people into the fishery because a lot of people who have licenses and who are fishing are aging and once they go out, they stop fishing. There's um, there's a question: who will who will obtain these licenses, or who will keep fishing if there's no new entrants into the fishery? So my my study focuses on on seeing these dynamics and processes, and why is it that there's less people in the fishery now, and what will happen in the future? What are the future plans? of new entrants, of people who are in the fishery and also of people who are exiting um, the fishery. And the way that we study this um, is through mixed methods, so quantitative and qualitative. And um, we designed a, an online survey for fish harvesters with the help of our Norwegian uh, counterparts uh, who also designed a, a survey in their country. And we adapted it to the Newfoundland and Labrador uh, context. Um, unfortunately, COVID happened, so everything had to, the recruitment process had to be online, uh, but we were able to obtain 330 responses. Um, we also were able to do some interviews, even though we, I had to do them by phone <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, due to COVID. Um, I was only able to do 11 interviews, but uh, with the interviews I went, deep into the topics of the of the survey. In the survey, we ask fish harvesters for how long they had been fishing, what's the species that they fish, um, um, do they encourage their children to fish, what do they think it's important to stay in the fishery or for the fishery to have a future. Um, we also ask uh, people who own a license and a vessel, what, I, what is their plan? Uh, because I think that's important in the sense what if people's plans are to just sell your fishing enterprise to the highest bidder? Um, that may pose problems for rural and coastal communities because if the license doesn't stay in the community, then the li livelihoods from the fishing are not available for community members. So responses to these questions are very important. We're seeing, um, a I have to say like a highest percentage want to pass on their, their their enterprise to to their family members to their sons or daughters 
Um, there's also people who want the fishing enterprise to stay in the community. And there's also people actually that um, would like the, to sell it to the highest bidder. So those are some of the questions that we're asking um, in the survey. And we hope to do a report in lay language report for everybody to read and also to well, produce um, academic publications as well. Those are really interesting questions. And uh, I'm curious now uh, if you have some of the preliminary findings from this research that you could share with us. Yeah, so I think um, if you ask uh, owner operators, those are the people who fish their license and own a vessel. I I'm calling them owner operators. So they, if you ask them, have you had problems finding crew? They will tell you no. Most of them know. I think it's about 80%. Um, and some had, had have had some troubles. But in interviews, we found out that, well, people have been fishing with the same crew for years. Uh, this is a small-scale fisheries, right? So mm -hmm. their crew is has is also aging. The, the age of the crew is, is 48, I think, the average age. Um, so they've been also fishing with family members because they... There's been so many regulations. So instead of people, owner operators have lost money or have had to make extra investments. So in order to buffer this cost, they, they employ someone from their family because the earnings from the boat will stay in the family. Um, so there's not an immediate recruitment crisis, but what we're seeing in, in our survey is that there is sort of, how to say it, like a big, big obstacle between between being a crew member and an owner operator. Um, it seems like you have to have a lot of money to become an owner operator. And if you become an owner operator, you're stable in the fishery. You're more stable. If you're a crew member, you depend on owner operators. You don't have a contract. You don't have stable employment. Already owner operators don't have stable employment because it depends on the on the regulations of that year, on the stock, on the um, the abundance of the stock as well. So that's I think that's the most important finding that there's a big gap. I, I wouldn't put all fish harvesters in one pot. I would talk about crew versus owner operators. And then I would talk about crew who have um, who have a parent who will pass their license onto them because these people would have more opportunities to become stable than crew who don't have family, who owns a license and a vessel. Um, the other finding is that there's very few women, but a lot of, <laughs> I found it I found it very interesting in our survey we asked we had I think 44 women out of 330 respondents then we asked everyone have you had a woman fishing with you in your vessel in 2019 because all, all questions were uh for 2019 and I think it was 140 of them who said yes mm. so there's a lot of women fishing so I don't know where are these women in can we see them in, in social benefits? Are these are they informal workers? Are these the spouse who's coming just for one trip or two? Um, yeah, so this, this is very interesting, I think. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It is very interesting. I, I, would, I would love to learn more about that too. And I feel like, as you said, that's like some of the research that you feel like there's an opportunity there to, to investigate that further, right? And try to figure yes. out so you mentioned there's this big barrier uh, between being a crew member and becoming an owner operator, um, which is mainly, I think, a, related to the cost of owning a, mm -hmm. uh, an enterprise. Uh, so how can we overcome this barrier or maybe some of the other existing barriers that are preventing people from either entering the fishery sector as fish harvesters or more specifically, as you mentioned, becoming owner operators? Mm -hmm. So, yes, I think there's, um, we have to think about, you know, working in the fishery, you make money because you're catching natural resources. You're catching something that doesn't belong to anybody, right? It's the fish. 
So these licenses and enterprises are being sold for money. In my opinion, if these licenses were more regulated, like if if you gave a fish harvester a license and it went back to the government and then the government transfers it to somebody else, it would be it would be more egalitarian in the sense that those people wouldn't people who quit fishing or who stop fishing and and you know they they see their license and their vessel as sort of a pot of money that will help them for the retirement maybe um so instead of using that license and vessel for a pot of money that it should go back to the government and they should just go into a retirement system where they get paid for a retirement i'm thinking about those things that <laughs> mm-hmm. um yeah maybe maybe a fishing license shouldn't be equal to money and that could give the opportunity for more people to go into fishing and not only those who have family members who own a license and an enterprise there's also been talks about um regulating the prices or talks about new entrants needing um new entrants having loans from the government to buy the license and the uh, to buy the fishing enterprise but then again this would enable the same because you would have to be paying a loan later on um so yes so um i've heard that other countries have created temporary licenses for youth to give them something to fish you know you you have your license you can go out fishing and you save money and when you save money you buy your own vessel and then you can keep buying a quota or a license so that could also be a way to go yeah that's interesting there's different alternatives there that you've identified as uh, potential ways of doing it and mm-hmm. uh, as you said you're thinking also about um the equality or um equity and trying to get uh people who normally wouldn't have had access to that uh mm-hmm. fisheries because they don't have family in it or because they don't have uh enough capital to to make the purchase that they would also have still have the opportunity of entering fisheries uh so in your research have you um had the chance to have a sense of how many people uh or how often that happens that someone who doesn't have those existing connections enters in fisheries stays and becomes an owner operator as well that's a really good question i i kind of regret that we didn't ask that question in our survey because we had so many respondents we didn't ask how did you become a fish harvester if you had family um in my interviews as i said everybody had a fishing family uh the few that didn't um this is also through informal conversations and not part of the interviews but mm-hmm. their spouse or or they their spouse was um had a license and an enterprise and they needed help so the spouse oh, came later on mm-hmm. Okay, so how have fisheries governance and socio-ecological changes shaped the way people enter the fishery and remain in the fishery in Newfoundland and Labrador over the years? Yes, so there's so the the you know the declining stocks and the different moratoria in the 90s that was a big hit um for Newfoundland and Labrador and there were many changes for example the so-called moonlighters these were part-time fishers uh who probably had seasonal work maybe they were they usually use the example of teachers who in the summer they're free so they would fish so some regulations were changed so to get rid of the moonlighters of the part-time fishers so now if you fish if you have a um, license and a vessel you have to be a full-time fisher so you have to make 75% of your income has to come from fishing during the fishing season um 
so that has definitely shaped the way in which people enter the fishery. Some people will use the fishery to go back and forth into other jobs. Now you cannot do that. It's more and more difficult and people are, some people are angry about it because, because it's sometimes it's very difficult to make ends meet just in the fishery, especially in small scale fisheries. Um, then there's been other policies. Um, DFO has focused on the viability of the few vessels that are still in the water to increase the viability of the few vessels through the body up policy and the combining policy. So the body up policy is basically allows you to go out and fish with another license holder of the same species. And it depends on the area. It's not every area um, that can do that. So what happens is like you, you you use less crew, less gas, less less cost to go for a trip on fishing and you crew for each other, like uh, owner operators are crewing for each other. So that should um, decrease the cost. Uh, what I've heard though, and through also through my survey findings is that people are do not like the body up policy, which is contrary to to what you would think, right? Um, and people don't like it because before they actually used to go out fishing like three or four license holders in the same fishing vessel. And now you're only allowed to do it two people. So that's very curious. This is also based on some other work um, done in the Change Islands. Uh, I forgot by whom, but yeah, they also mm -hmm. found the same um, perceptions about the body up policy. Um, the combining policy allows um, a license holder to buy another license. So that effectively increases the quota of fish that you can catch. But then these, these two licenses become one. So one disappears. And the problem with that is that when you sell it, you can only sell it to one fish harvester into, instead of two. So that kind of reduces the number of fish harvesters. It does increase the viability of the ones that stay in, but it's, it's redistributing the resource in a different way. So it seems, I think probably you've heard this phrase, like the wealth or the resource is, is increasingly staying in fewer and fewer hands. And yes, this mm -hmm. is the governance changes and that have um, enabled that. So based on your research and on those different findings that you just mentioned, what kind of advice would you give policymakers on how to enable recruitment and retention in small scale fisheries in Newfoundland? Well, yes, recruitment, I would say, um, yes, that you have to regulate the licenses. Like, is it fair to buy and sell licenses or should it be something that it's more com like owned by everybody, right? Like you just transfer it from person to person instead of being sold because the fish are not, should not be owned by a person. Mm -hmm. um, I said that would, in, that would improve recruitment in the long term. Then um, for retention, I think the employment conditions of crew need to improve because if there's a high turnover, um, it's mostly because people cannot make it with the money that they receive from the fishery as a, as a crew member. It's very unstable. If it's unstable for owner operators, it, it is even more unstable for crew, more precarious for crew. So improving the conditions of, of the crew would definitely improve retention. Um, and it would go hand in hand maybe with the prices of the licenses, I would say, yeah. Yeah, and what would it take to improve those working conditions of the crew? Like, what would that look like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, yeah, because the fishery is so unpredictable. That's that's what fish harvesters say. It's so unpredictable from year to year. You don't know if you're going to make it. You're not. You don't know if you're going to have enough money to make your payments uh, for maintenance of your vessel. Um, you have to work hard even for the wages of your crew members. So how? Why? I mean, yeah, I think it comes back to. To this investment that fish harvesters have done in order to be able to fish, because if you are paying off a fishing a fish licenses, a fish enterprise that has cost you a lot of money, you have to make a lot of money out of the fishery. 
and you and and you also have to pay crew. So if you if owner operators were not so stressed with all these costs, maybe they would have better prices for crew members. Maybe we shouldn't. It's it's a trickle down effect. That's what I'm thinking on one side. On the other side, maybe there's programs that the that the government could initiate uh, for people to help people stay afloat as crew members for a while before they accrue the money they need to invest in in their own fishing enterprise and become more stable. Yeah. So those are the things I've thought about so far. <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. And uh, what are some of the consequences that policies? Uh, facilitating entry into fisheries would have on coastal livelihoods. So if we did mm -hmm. see the working conditions of crew members improving um, and that becoming easy and it becoming easier for them to become owner operators one day. So what mm -hmm. would our coastal communities look like? Yeah, people would stay, would stay. There's a big out migration crisis in Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, the population demographics is shifting. Everybody, like there's an aging population and there's a need for people to stay. People need, communities would become more lively because if there's fish, there's gonna be a fishing plant. And if there's a fish plant, there's gonna be more jobs and other industries, maybe transportation, etc. So having a fishery work, improve recruitment, improve retention, uh, maybe not focus on quantity, but on the quality of the fish to, you know, so the value stays the same or increases, that could um, just benefit communities. They, they're very small communities. Uh, there's, I think it's over 600 communities in Newfoundland, only the island of Newfoundland, and they're very small. So just a few fish harvesters making it, making their livelihood from the fishery would be a great help. So just in, in addition to that, uh, to that question, when we think about uh, aging an aging fishing population and um, out migration from rural areas, is it that I feel like Newfoundland is not the only example where that is happening in the fish areas and where there is a concern for uh, recruitment and having people fishing in the future mm -hmm. sustainably? So. When when you compare that when, with other other scenarios in other locations across the world, do you see any parallels um, to Newfoundland in relation to the issues that Newfoundland uh, faces for for recruitment, and then issues that you see in other places? Mm -hmm. So yes, yeah, so there's um, I've read other studies about recruitment and retention in the fishery uh, from other countries, and. Um, Sometimes the, I've even seen, you know, the, the, the social expectations nowadays um, that are just changing the social expectations that you need an education. And if you don't have an education, you won't have a job. So it's kind of driving people further and further away from dedicating themselves to the fishery and out migrating maybe to cities where there's a university, where there's other type of job, and then where they come from, these rural communities, they age, they're aging. So uh, some, ta for example, town councils that are being run by people for many years, and then if something happens to them, then who's gonna run this town council? These, these communities could become mm, less active um, so yeah, so other scenarios, I, I don't know. I, I mean, we're facing the climate change crisis and I thought about maybe we need just to be more local in general, and that would make the economy more thriving, maybe a, a cyclical e economy where you're thinking about how to stay closer, how to reuse what you produce within your means. Um, globalization has, has created these imbalances of what you experience, you know, the, this fish that is fish here is, um, is being transported by plane to other continents. And there's a lot of money being made out of it, but then is that, is, 
all that money reaching the communities here? Is it worth it, all this? Or is it worth it to just be local, consume local seafood and be self-sufficient with, with what we have around us? Um, I'm currently writing um, a book chapter on how COVID affected consumption of lobster in the Magdalene Islands in Quebec, which is also a rural community, very isolated community as well. And just the fact that they have the seafood right there, but it took the, the pandemic for the seafood to become more accessible to locals. So it makes you think of, well, you know, like there's, there's really great resources around us that could be attractive for, for youth, uh, uh, you know, to, to, we need to change maybe the shift in values. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, those are really good points. And, uh, and I do think that the COVID-19 pandemic has made us rethink a lot of things, including that, including uh, what we have access to uh, when there's a, a major issue with our global distribution system. So yeah, those are really good points. Um, what are some of the things that you would still like to understand through your research? Yeah, so um, I would be interested to speak more to crew members and also people who want to fish but are not fishing due to whatever reason they have. Um, those people I haven't been able to talk to. Uh, because my research was not targeted towards them. I, I was not recruiting people. Hey, do you want to fish? Well, it, I kind of did, but it, it's more difficult to pinpoint this, um, these people. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's also through some interviews and through reading uh, newspapers that there's also these, that, that we see fish harvesters all in the same Bag, all, all from the same group, but that's not true. Um, there's some fish harvesters who are fishing just because it was in their family tradition and that's what they had as an option, but that they, it's not really their call. It's not what they, what they would like to be doing. It is they fish because it's expected of them. I've heard of mental health problems. I've heard of fear. <laughs> um, so that would be very interesting too. you know, the options that you have and how you're expected to do something and you do it and then you don't like it, but then there's no other options. I'm not saying that happens a lot, um, but it would, yeah, it, it is interesting. It is, it is an interesting aspect. <laughs> yes, that would be a really interesting mm -hmm. research. And uh, mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering now too, for those, because uh, you did have that question, of why why they're in the fisheries or why mm -hmm. did they get in the fisheries mm -hmm. um so what what was it the the response that you got the most out of that that question what what is it that brings people into fisheries yeah. the most in newfoundland yes um that is very interesting i think uh, a lot of people answer that they like to be their own boss they like to be in the outdoors um in interviews, people said that they love fishing, that they do not imagine themselves doing anything else, like the feeling of being in the water. Um, be, yeah, they talked about, I don't know how to be on, on land. I know how to be at sea. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, like, what else have they said? Like, I will fish until I die or until I can't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's so yeah. interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's very interesting because uh, I feel like this uh, is probably something that we hear across the world in relation to small scale fishers. Mm -hmm. uh, I did hear a lot of those same answers because I had a similar question when I was mm -hmm. interviewing fishers in Brazil and I heard the exact same answers to it. <laughs> uh, and it was very interesting how that translates to different to a completely different country and yeah. uh, different cultures. Interesting. Yes. That's definitely, yeah. That's yeah. They have a relationship with the water. That's incredible. And yeah. So Maria, you're also involved in other projects. Um, can you tell us a bit more about some of these other 
projects you have been involved with and how they complement your research? Yes, so I'm, my background is on occupational health and safety and well-being. Um, so that has led me to, um, to collaborate with people who study employment in aquaculture. I've been collaborating with a risk assessment um, analysis on the working conditions of people who work when there's mass die-offs in aquaculture, uh, specifically in Chile. Um, I've learned a lot about the regulations there. Uh, it's very, it's a, it's a, it's in its infancy, um, the regulations related to mass die-offs and occupational health and safety. There's a lot of risks uh, that need to be studied more. Um, so I've been collaborating on that. I've been also collaborating on um, sustainable and equitable employment in the aquaculture sector here in Newfoundland and Labrador. And this was thanks to a grant from the Harry Center. Um, they have a thriving regions um, fund that I applied with a coworker. Her name is Christine Knott. And um, the Harry Center basically goes to a community, uh, to a rural community in Newfoundland and asks uh, community members, what would you like researchers to study? What would you like? What would you like to know? What would help you? And they have a set of topics and then um, the Harry Centers publishes a call for researchers that would like to apply and study any of the of the topics that community members chose. And one of the the topics that the the Burying Peninsula uh, community chose was employment, um, uh, recruitment and retention, and employment in the Burying Peninsula. So. Uh, Christine and I proposed a project about studying sustainable and equitable employment in aquaculture and specifically now because there's um, um, operations from Grigenel there being developed and we want to know what the community wants out of aquaculture, what aquaculture has to offer and what's going to happen um, uh, to jobs, to employees, to employers, uh, etc. Yeah, so it seems like you've been involved with a lot of uh, aquaculture projects as well. Um, so have you seen some parallels between that uh, aquaculture in Newfoundland and Labrador and fisheries? Uh, what are some of the things that you're learning from investigating that that side too of uh, aquaculture? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think both of these um, projects, they are both focused on recruitment and retention of how important it is to recruit people um, and, retain, and retain people, especially locally, because there's, or locally, or bringing people from outside the community to come and live and work in the community. That's also important to make the community more diverse and more uh, lively. Um, and uh, those are the parallels between the two. There's differences, of course, because in aquaculture, you're working for a company and this company has needs and they will hire depending on your on the skills that you have and these skills are not skills that you can learn growing up in the community that you grew up in um, although there's some fish harvesters that do have uh, the skills that it takes to work in aquaculture like um, it like but well, vessels like uh, driving a vessel i don't know do you say driving a vessel <laughs> handling a vessel, um, mm -hmm. but there's also other types of technology that aquaculture uses and you need those skills, workers with those skills. So where are you going to get those workers? Are they going, are people in the community being trained? Um, are people outside the community coming in uh, and working there? Are they going to stay? What, what does it take for other people to stay, especially when you think about programs that bring um, new Canadians into into rural communities, because uh, that's what we've heard, you know, that um, that's happening. That's also happening in processing plants, right? The temporary foreign worker programs, um, which brings people temporarily to Canada to work in seafood processing plants, and then they go back to their country, and they have very few rights when they're here, and it's um, a low wage um, in job. 
So yes, so all these things are very related, you know, and seafood processing is, is related to both aquaculture and both the fishery sector because both fish need to be processed like, um, and yeah. So yes, those are the parallels between those two. What would the working conditions be like for those working in aquaculture? In aquaculture? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what we've heard so far, um, this is very preliminary. There's, of course, if it's a skilled work, it will pay better. Um, there's fewer workers. So um, an aquacult in aquaculture, um, to have a license um, in aquaculture, you have to provide um, an approximate amount, uh, the number of workers that you're going to hire. So projections are very big. A lot of workers will be hired also for the construction part. I know that um, Grigonel has already built um, some parts of their, of their, I don't know how to call it, um, but their the hatchery, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, so they employ a lot of construction workers that brings money to the community. Then now that everything's built, so now the construction workers are not working there anymore, then there's the second phase, right? Who are the workers who, who are going to come? It's going to be fewer workers who are high, 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 highly skilled, and there needs to be um, training institutions preparing these workers for aquaculture in all of the province. I know that the Marine Institute has an aquaculture program, um, and I don't know what are the plans about these training programs. Are they going to be only in St. John's? Are they going to provide these training programs in rural communities? Are they going to bring the programs there for local people? So all these questions we want to answer through, through this research that we're doing. Yeah, thanks for giving us more information on that. And it's, it's interesting how uh, you're looking at both aquaculture and fisheries and, and seeing how uh, both of them contribute to coastal communities and coastal livelihoods. So what are the next steps in your career now and where do you see yourself in the future? Yes, so <laughs> my next steps. Uh, so yes, so I'm, I'm doing a postdoctoral. Um, I'm, I'm a postdoctoral fellow. I'm Postdoctoral fellowships are usually two or three years. Some some are one year. This I've been doing this job for two two years and a half or so. I'm moving on to another postdoctoral position um, uh, regarding employment and health outcomes. Um, and uh, I think this this research trajectory that I've done. I hope it's preparing me. Um, to, to conduct more research, but closer to policymakers and closer to community organizations that have the power to build infrastructures for better employment and better working conditions. So my aim would be, it would be wonderful to work in, um, in a governmental institution or with um, a ministry of public health. Um, and using these skills I've learned in the, acad in the academic world and transferring them um, to these institutions, or maybe staying in the academic world because there's some academics that are starting to do community-based research. They're starting to work with communities, communities reach out to them, and then there's change being implemented at the same time. Um, yes, so I would love to focus on, on implementation um, uh, of, of the research, implementing it and making it, to, implementing it and making it uh, realistic or, or, or or doing a change, uh, how do you call it? from research to practice, <laughs> efforts from research to practice. I would love to work in that. Uh, yes, that sounds very interesting. And I'm sure that uh, with all of your experience, uh, you would contribute a lot to um, making change, uh, affecting change in coastal communities and, and other areas as well. So Maria, now the this part of the interview is over, but we usually ask a group of five questions to all of the guests that come on the show. Yeah. Uh, so the first question is, uh, what is your favorite fish? <laughs> okay, so I know it sounds cliche, but I, I love cod. <laughs> and the reason why I, I love it, it's because here in Newfoundland and Labrador, I learned how to fish it and how to gut it, fillet it and cook it. So it mm -hmm. feels very rewarding when you're eating it. 
<laughs> oh, that's amazing that you learned uh, all, all the steps of the process. Yes. <laughs> uh, and what is your favorite memory from your career or research so far? Oh, I have many memories, <laughs> but I think, I think the good memories would be like two types of good memories. The good memories with coworkers where you go into meetings and you think about a problem together and you come out of the meeting and you're like, woof, we, I think we, we, we moved forward a lot. Those are good memories, but also I have great memories about doing field work, collecting data and talking to people. Um, one of good memories I have is just hopping on, on a bus and following the life of a bus driver for a whole day from 5 a.m. to 8 or 9 p.m. So it was a full day. I was exhausted. And this, you know, like they do this every day. <laughs> so I think that that was a, a very good memory just to learn. It, it was very humbling to learn what people do on a daily basis and to see what's important to them. That's very interesting. Thanks for sharing that with us. <laughs> um, and what is your dream job or location? I guess you oh. talked a little bit about your dream uh, yeah. career, but mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, so yeah, my dream job would be working with a community or government organization doing research uh, for policy makers, decision makers. And my dream location, that would be Barcelona in Spain, is very specific. <laughs> I'm from Guatemala, but I, I did my master's and PhD in Barcelona. And I have a wide community there. And um, yes, I miss the weather conditions. And yeah, I, I, I also love the fact that you don't have to own a car um, to just live. So I know it's very specific, but yeah, I think community attracts me a lot and my community in Barcelona is great. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to, <laughs> to see what Barcelona is like, but it does sound like a, like a really good place to live, especially as you said, there's no, not as, not as much of a need for a car as we mm -hmm. do in Newfoundland. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and if money wasn't an issue, what is the one project that you would like to work on? Okay, so that's, that's very interesting because when I was in as a bachelor's, you know, like bachelor doing my bachelor's degree in undergrad, I, I was I did neuroscience as my bachelor's degree. And I did a lot of psychology courses and linguistics. So I know it sounds weird, but maybe I, I would like to do a project with linguistics in Guatemala. I'm from I'm from Guatemala. And there's about, I think there's like 28 uh, different indigenous languages. Oh, wow. And yes, so I know it, it's very different from the topic that I do. Um, but yes, I would love to see that going on because the state there in Guatemala has everything in Spanish. It's been quite a fight to have education in indigenous languages or supermarket signs. And this affects, you know, the working population, this affects the health of population, the well-being of people. So, yeah, if I had, if I had an issue that I would have to pick, it would be that one. <laughs> That's awesome. And I'm sure you can make connections to, to the work that you do now too. So yes, yes, <laughs> maybe, hopefully. <laughs> maybe, that, maybe that could be a project in the future too. Yes. <laughs> Uh, if there was one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what what would that be? Yeah, that's difficult. Well, if if I'm thinking about researchers, what would be a principle that I would program into researchers' head? Maybe it would be compassion and humility, like compassion to understand the world, be more compassionate also to yourself, like being an academic is also a job <laughs> that has risks that has the working conditions so being compassionate to yourself but also being compassionate if you work with people towards them and and you know uh, having compassion when you when you um build those research questions your hypothesis you, you i know researchers have to be impartial but you also have to think about how research is being done and how research has 
how we learn how to research. Is it the right way? It's not always the right way. I think we have to question things. So maybe compassion would be a way to do that. I love that. I'm sure that we could all use uh, more compassion. Uh, so Maria, thank you so much for coming to the podcast today. Uh, it was a pleasure hearing about you and all of your work. Um, so if people want to find out more information or get a hold of you, how would they do that? Oh, yes. Uh, so they can write to my email address. Um, even, you know, even if I move to other positions, I keep my email address, which is great. So through Gomez at mon.ca. So Lopez and Gomez are with the said, both of them. Um, and I, I believe OFI also has a website, ofigovernance.net. <laughs> uh so yeah people can reach out and if there's fish harvesters or crew people or people who want to start fishing that if you want to contact me right away that would be great too <laughs> oh sounds great uh so yeah i'll have that information on our web page of the fisheries podcast and then our listeners can click on on the link to the ofi website and to see maria's email so yeah thank you so much maria Thank you, Mariela. This was fun. Thanks. Thank you for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at FisherspPod, or send an email to feedback at thefisherspodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisherspodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon, or buy some awesome Fisheries Podcast logo shirts, hoodies, stickers, available on Teespring Store. My name is Mirella Lees. Thank you for listening to episode number 155 of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, the trajectory of fishing work has changed and continues to change through time, affecting recruitment, training, and retention of fisheries. Who is going to fish into the future?